Well, today we're going to have um, what you might call heaps of fun. And uh, you know, of course, that there are different kinds of fun, right? Right? I, I guess more precisely, different qualities of fun or, or different levels of fun. There is the most basic level of fun, and that is physical fun. The, the adrenal rush of surfing a monster wave or bungee jumping or, or going up to the top of a mountain covered with snow and ice and letting gravity have its way with you as you just jump down the slope, that's pretty exciting, isn't it? That's fun. But there's another kind of fun, another quality of fun, and that is not physical fun, but intellectual fun. The fun of discovery. The fun of knowing things either you've never known before or knowing things with greater clarity than you've ever known before, and you have an aha moment. Things just open up before you, an expanse of awareness and perception, and you're like, whoa, that is amazing. I've never seen it from that angle before, and now my relationship with God can expand. Because God is constantly in the process of trying to reach our hearts through our minds. He's not interested in bypassing our minds. He's not interested in merely stimulating inside of us emotions. He's interested in calibrating our emotions to our perceptions. So, so accurate knowledge of the character of God has the effect of expanding our emotional capacity. Or you could say it this way. The more you know with your brain, with your mind about God, with accuracy and clarity, the more you know about God, the more sensitive your heart becomes toward God. And you experience the greatest fun of all. And that is the fun of falling in love. The fun of knowing and loving God more intelligently, more passionately, perhaps, than ever before. Now, I am aware that you're in the midst of a journey through the Old Testament, and that's pretty exciting. Now, now when David announced, we're going to be going through the Old Testament, I can tell you that I'm almost certain that most of you said something inside your spirit like, oh, no, really? We're going to go through the Old Testament? Couldn't, couldn't we talk about something more positive? Because the Old Testament has a bad rap, yes or no? People are constantly drawing a contrast between Old Testament and New Testament. Now, I won't go into this right now, but if you pay attention, you'll find some Old Testament stories in the New Testament and lots of New Testament stories in the Old. And it turns out that really there is just one story being told, and it's a continuum. But it's more than a continuum. It is a kind of narrative arc. In other words, the story's beginning somewhere, and then it is going somewhere specific. In order to get where we need to go today, I'm going to make a contribution to your Old Testament journey. Um, I could just say, ah, I'm just going to talk about something else, but you're talking about the Old Testament, so I'm going to make a contribution to your Old Testament journey, if that's okay with you. We're going to do an aerial view from one perspective to understand the grand narrative arc of Scripture. Now, there's more to it than what I'm about to unpack, way more to it. That's why you're taking a whole year to go through, longer than a year to go through the Old Testament. There's a lot more detail. You can get up close to the trees and examine the bark, and we need to do that sometimes. Examine the branches and, and the fruit. But sometimes it is helpful just to take a deep breath, back up, get elevated, and look at the landscape. Look at the forest. So that's what we're going to be doing right now. In order to get there, in order to get where we're going, I want you to imagine that you've just walked into a building. You've walked into a room. And as you open the first door and you enter that room, you see that there is one door against the far wall. And that one door, you notice that there's some guy on one knee, and he's doing something you ought not to do with keyholes. He's looking 
through the keyhole of that door. Now, it's my story, so I can use an old school door with a keyhole. And he's looking through the keyhole into that room. And just as you enter the building, he stands to his feet, he screams, he runs in your direction, and he says, something diabolical is going on in that room. Well, you're curious because that's just the kind of person you are. So as he's running out, away from that door, you run toward the door. That's you, isn't it? And you drop to one knee, and you begin looking through the keyhole, and sure enough, you see one, two, three, four, no, three. You're counting things that are going on in that room, and it looks pretty serious because as you look through the keyhole, you see blood spurting in all directions. You see the gleam of a knife, and it sure looks sharp. And you see drugs and syringes strewn out all over a table. What's going on in that room? Well, I'd like to suggest to you that either something very bad or something very good is going on in that room. Some of you right now, you're thinking, I know what's going on in that room. I've seen it on TV. It's a drug deal gone bad. It's murder going on in that room. Others of you, you're thinking, maybe it's a surgery. Maybe it's a life-saving event rather than a life-threatening event. Because all you have right now is the elements of what's going on in the room. You're just looking through the keyhole, which means you have a limited perspective. What kind of perspective do you have through the keyhole? Limited. It's narrow. What do you need to do to really find out what's going on in the room? You need to open the door and enter the room. Yes or no? Yeah, that's what you need to do if you really want to know if something very bad or something very good is going on in that room. Now, Scripture is that kind of thing. Scripture is a room, as it were, that we need to enter into and examine the various elements, the intersecting pieces of the story in order to build a conceptual awareness of, oh, okay, that dynamic is intersecting with that one, and this historical episode shows up again over here, you see how that works? And you begin to see a big picture of what's going on in the biblical room, in the biblical story. So, so we got to get in the room. We got to get familiar with the characters. We got to get familiar with the relational dynamics going on in the room. And what I'm going to suggest to you is a very simple picture at first. Richard Dawkins, I don't know if you can see that with the light in here, but Richard Dawkins is no doubt the most famous and the most articulate atheist on earth. Prolific author. He's even gone into writing children's books. That's scary. And his children's books are something like, life sucks and it's really bad and it's never going to amount to anything and it's all going to disintegrate, the end. That's Richard Dawkins in children's book with a lot of nice things in between like the stars are pretty but Richard Dawkins looks at the Bible and he sees something he says the God of the Old Testament is arguably the most unpleasant character in all fiction so so when he looks through the keyhole and I'm suggesting that he's just looking through the keyhole he's not biblically literate enough to make that kind of statement there's an arrogance here Okay, but I'm not going to attack his character. I'd have lunch with the guy. The point is that he doesn't have the kind of intellectual authority to talk like this. He's looking through the keyhole. He hasn't spread his arms around in the room. He doesn't know what's going on in the storyline of Scripture. The narrative eludes him continually. Now, what we're going to do is suggests that the Bible can be divided into three basic parts. Follow this very carefully. This is our first pass in our helicopter over the forest, all right? Here to the left, we see a circle that just says Genesis 1 and 2. And then all the way over on the right, we see Revelation 21 and 22. And essentially what's going on here 
is those two opening chapters, follow this, and those two closing chapters, are you still with me? Are the only chapters in the Bible that describe what the world and reality looks like in an absence of sin. Did you catch that? So the opening part of the story, the first two chapters, Genesis 1 and 2, describes what relationships look like, what God looks like, what humans look like, living in a relational dynamic in which all there is is love. All there is is other-centeredness. Adam exists with his total center of gravity in Eve. And Eve quite likes the arrangement and says, more of that. No. Eve's total center of gravity is in Adam, completing the geometric shape, if you will, of love. Love is a circle. It's a circle of beneficence. It's, a, it, it's rotational. Love is I exist for you, not for me. And you exist for me, not for you. And that's what's going on in Genesis 1 and 2. Chapter 3 is where the fall, the fall is described. Sin, the principle of sin enters the picture. And when sin enters the picture, everything begins to fragment and fall apart relationally. On a vertical level and a horizontal level. Human beings lose relational integrity with God, and that spills over into losing relational integrity with one another. Everybody's at one another's throats now. Everything's falling apart, because now everybody has a totally different psychological orientation. The pre-fall psychological orientation is other-centeredness. Relational integrity. I exist for you. You exist for me. But the fallen psychology is egocentric, narcissistic. It's focused inward. Every man for him. See, we have it memorized. It's the philosophy of the fallen human race. But then the whole story is told and unravels before us. An unravel was a word chosen precisely for its intent. Things come apart. The human race begins to come apart at the seams. It becomes not just horrible, it becomes horrific as human history unfolds. And what I'm suggesting to you is that what we see, what we witness going on in the biblical narrative is we witness through the story God navigating evil. God isn't the source of evil. He doesn't manufacture it. He's not its origin. But he's navigating it. He's, he's dealing with the hand that we've dealt him. God's navigating evil, and he navigates evil with such pure genius that you would expect of God the one who is infinite in wisdom. He navigates evil in such a way as to pull off the most remarkable feat imaginable. He saves you and me while keeping our free will intact. He pulls off the most remarkable thing imaginable. He gets the sin problem out of us without outing us. What God does is he destroys evil while preserving those in whom it resides. It is a surgical procedure going on, and it is delicate business. And God is navigating evil, and he navigates evil in such a way that the story comes to resolve. It lands. It comes to a beautiful place. And the beautiful place the story comes to is Revelation 21 and 22, which is, in a literary sense, in a literary sense, Genesis 1 and 2, Revelation 21 and 22 are mirror images. 
This is where God has brought the sin problem to a resolve. And now, Revelation 21 and 22 describes the world as it will be when it is returned to its Edenic state. New heavens, new earth, no pain, no suffering. John, we know, deliberately has Genesis in mind because he throws in this very, very significant line in, Genesis, in Revelation 21, 22. And he says, and there was no more curse there. Describing the new heavens and the new earth, he lifts the language of curse from the post-fall condition of the human race. And he says, everything that is like a curse is removed from the new situation. No death, no pain, and he goes so far. It's very tender. It's very beautiful. It's very, it's very emotional. He actually depicts God doing something in Revelation 21 and 22 that you just wouldn't expect from a despotic, micromanaging, control freak kind of God. John says, and when it all is said and done, there are going to be a lot of tears but God himself will reach up his hand and wipe tears from our eyes, brush tears from our cheeks. Just picture that moment. When you're weeping in the aftermath and the trauma of the sin problem, now it's over and you're looking back and you're saying, oh God, thank you for saving me. And you're weeping and he's brushing tears from your cheek and smiling into your eyes. That's is how the story ends. Now, what I've depicted in this illustration is that the story has a beginning, the story has an end, and all through the middle, God is doing what? What's that language at the top? God is navigating evil. Now, the way God navigates evil, I'm going to suggest, and again, the picture, the story is more complex than this. This is, a, this is one sermon, so we can't say everything. We're going to say some things. Are you with me? So there are two primary relational dynamics that define God's navigating of evil. And they are covenant and accommodation. Say them out loud so we know what we're looking for. An expression deepens impression so we don't lose track here. What are the two defining characteristics of God's navigating evil through the scripture? What are they? Covenant and accommodation. Okay, first of all, covenant. What is this covenant idea all about? Well, Martin Luther got to it in, in this statement that he made. Martin, not Martin Luther, Martin Luther King Jr. got to the idea when he observed that the moral arc of the universe is long, but it bends toward justice. So, so, what he's observing here is that reality, because of the way God has, has constructed reality, evil is a passing fad. It's going to work itself out of our system by the way God navigates evil with us. And justice ultimately is going to prevail, and justice is just the biblical word for things being made right. Everything, that wrong, everything that's wrong in the world will be made right. That's, what, that's what's going on in the biblical narrative. And covenant is the idea that God is operating on, the relational dynamic God is operating on. So, so, so here's what the word covenant means in Scripture. God himself articulating the essence of the idea, okay? In Isaiah 54, verse 10, Though the mountains be shaken and the hills be removed, yet what? My unfailing love for you will not be shaken, nor, what's that word? Nor my covenant of peace be removed. Now, grammatically, in the poem, grammatically, what is covenant equivalent to? Unfailing love. The, these are interchangeable. These are one and the same thing. Now, we have that kind of carried over in our modern usage of covenant. And we're not using the word very much anymore. It's a word that is going out of vogue for sure. But, but we speak of the marriage what? Covenant. And what do we mean by that? We mean ongoing, 
steadfast, constant, unbroken, faithful love, come what may. That's what we mean by the marriage covenant. And it has its rooting in the character of God. God is a covenant-making, covenant-keeping God, which simply means God is a God of consistent, unfailing, unbroken, steady-as-she-goes kind of love. He won't stop. God is essentially saying to you and me in Scripture, I love you, and I'll never stop. He's saying, I love you now. Let me show you how I love you in practical, actionable terms. I'm going to relate to you in such a way that this love that I have for you is going to work itself out in a transformative way. So, so that's what covenant is. Covenant is a biblical concept that basically means faithful love, unfailing love, relational integrity. That's what the idea is all about. Now, watch what happens in Hosea chapter 6 and verse 5. This is not an expository sermon with one passage. This is a flyby, and so I'm moving through the scriptures conceptually right now to look at those three parts of the story, okay? So here in Hosea chapter 6, verse 5, notice the language here. God is speaking, and he says, I desired steadfast love, not sacrifice. The sacrificial system the shedding of the blood of bulls and of goats and that entire sanctuary system is an accommodation to the fallen situation. It's not God's first will. God never wanted a sacrificial system. In fact, you get the impression from scriptures, we're going to just shortly here, that God is so sensitive that God is such a God of love that he can't even bear the suffering of animals. God never wanted a sacrificial system. All God's ever wanted is steadfast, what? Love, that's it, okay? But then notice what it says. The knowledge of God, rather than burnt offerings, but like who? Like Adam, they, that's in the local historical sense speaking of Israel, in the broader sense it's speaking of the whole human race, you and me included, all right? They have transgressed what? Say it out loud. The covenant. Now, we know what covenant means now, right? In, in this passage, all God wants in the first sentence is steadfast love, but Adam breaks covenant with God, which means essentially what? God has, Adam has broken what? He's broken the love relationship. God still loves Adam, but Adam now has ceased to love God. That's what's being said here. Now, we all know how sin is defined in the Bible in some of the one-liners that we're very familiar with. Sin is transgression of the law. All have sinned and come short of the glory of God. To him who knows to do right and does not, not to him it is. Sin. Whatsoever is not of faith is. Okay, this definition of sin needs to be, needs to be built into your vocabulary. Your theological perceptions need to broaden on sin. Sin isn't merely the breaking of rules on tables of stone. The tables of stone are describing what love looks like in action. So to break the law is to break faithful love relationship with God. And with one another, by the way. So so steadfast love, that's all God's about. But Adam broke covenant, and so have we. Now, prepare yourself to be absolutely blown away. Because this theme shows up over and over in Scripture. I'm just going to give you one little example here in Isaiah 24 where the sin problem in a more systemic, global sense is described as impacting the earth and all living creatures. All right? Here, the Scripture says, the earth is also defiled under its inhabitants, the population, human beings, because they have transgressed the laws, changed the ordinance, and broken what? So the earth is defiled under the weight of just the way humans do life. The way we live is messing up the earth. That's what he's telling us here. We are ourselves by the way we process reality and the way we interact with the world, we as human beings are living in such a way that we are 
wrecking our very habitation. And then he goes on and he says this. Now watch, the next verse. This is verse 6. Therefore, because we've broken covenant, therefore the curse has devoured the earth and those who dwell in it are desolate. The sin problem is now described as having impact of all the humans, the animals, all life forms. The whole world is just impacted by broken covenant. Broken covenant. All right, so that brings us to our first key point that we want to emphasize. All the brokenness and destruction in the world is due to broken covenant. Another way of saying that is violations of love. Are you tracking with me so far? Are we on the same page? Is this enlightening? This is just mind-blowing to realize this is what we're dealing with. Suddenly, you have, to, you have to start taking some kind of inventory of what's going on in the way I relate to others, in the way I relate to the world. Suddenly, I have to start thinking soberly because the world isn't governed by imposed magic. The world is governed by laws. And the key law, the core law, is the law of love. And all the bad stuff in the world is the result of violating the integrity of love relationships. Now, what about this accommodation idea? We said at the beginning that there are two main dynamics, two main relational dynamics upon which God is operating in order to navigate evil, okay? The accommodation principle that shows up over and over in Scripture is basically one example after another of faithful love, God by his faithful love navigating evil. So, so let's look at some examples of what this looks like. First of all, as soon as Genesis chapter 1 and 2 came to a close, chapter 3 opened, the sin problem entered the picture, and notice that as soon as sin entered our system as human beings, God didn't abandon us. He didn't bolt. He didn't take off. He didn't say, hey, I'm out of here. I told you, and you violated, and so now you're on your own. Now, in order for God to continue in relationship with you and me, he's going to have to bear responsibility for some stuff that he's not actually responsible for. That's the nature of the psychology behind the sin problem. We experience this all the time on a micro level and on a macro level. The micro level we're familiar with. We all know that it is natural for us, for any one of us, for all human beings, that when you have unresolved guilt, when you have unresolved shame because of something you've done, your natural inclination is to find a scapegoat or psychologically to find somebody who's worse than you are. Somebody that you can blame, somebody that you can criticize, somebody that you can even sanctimoniously say to your brothers and sisters, can you believe she did thus and such? Let's pray for her. And then you just baptize the gossip. So you don't have to go any further than that. But we tend psychologically to not want to take responsibility for evil. So the ultimate responsibility we put on God theologically. We formulate theologies that make God responsible for evil. We look at Scripture through a lens that allows us to see God as the one who's responsible. So we don't have to take responsibility and do life any differently. So, as soon as there's sin, God doesn't abandon us. He says, hey, hey, I'm going to tell you what's going to happen now. Here's what's going to happen. I will put enmity, that's hostility, hatred. I'm going to put hostility between you, he's talking to the serpent, in the presence of Adam and Eve. I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and hers. He, now it's a singular offspring, will crush your head, serpent, and you will wound or strike or bruise his heel in the process. Now, this is the first gospel promise, this is the first prophetic promise, and this is the first articulation of covenant. This is God making a promise and intending to keep it straight down through history. But notice what the scripture reveals. 
the scripture actually shows us that what will run concurrent or parallel down through history. Did you catch it? Two elements, two things. Two, okay, I'll tell you. Two offsprings. The offspring of the serpent, the offspring of the woman. And these two lineages, these two lines of offspring, one is propagating and stimulating and promoting and, I'll just add this, advertising evil down through history. The other is at enmity against that tide of evil and trying to push back on it. Do you see that in the text? And all of this is a grand narrative arc that is going to a singular intervention that God will make through an individual who will come to our rescue, crush the serpent, and be wounded in the process. This is Jesus. This is the Messiah. Now, examples of the accommodation principle. Examples of the accommodation principle. The first one that gets attention is the flood. But what we learn about the flood, unlike, contrary to what Richard Dawkins and others who who look at the Bible and, and through the keyhole they see something bad happening, contrary to that minimal view of, ah, the God of the Old Testament is just a ruthless, murderous, kind of barbaric, primitive God. Contrary to that, what we see in the flood story is a very sophisticated moral sense. A very sophisticated moral sense. Not a primitive moral sense. Just watch this. What we see in the story is that God observes something. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. So God observes evil. He is not the author of it. He's not creating it. He's not instigating it. He doesn't will it. He's observing the evil, and he goes on. The earth also is corrupt before God, was corrupt before God, and the earth was filled with, and now there's this word, there's this one part of the corruption that the flood story wants us to take note of. The earth is corrupt, it's evil, and one of the things that's going on is it's violent. There's a whole lot of violence going on. Well, how serious is the violence? How far is it being taken? Watch this now. So God looked upon the earth, and indeed it was corrupt, for all flesh had corrupted their way on the earth. So this sounds pandemic. This is universal, pretty much. There's that Noah guy and his three sons and their wives and Noah's wife, but it's pretty much universal, so God is observing. He's, he's telling us what he's witnessing, and God said to Noah, this is the part that nobody really ever reads. In fact, I'll quote it, and maybe you, because you've been going through the Old Testament, and David's been teaching you through the Old Testament, you might know this verse, but the average Joe or Jolene out there is oblivious to this part of the story. The flood story looks to a lot of people like, God got mad and drowned the world. Woo! Don't mess with him. Or, what's another possible response? I don't believe in a God like that. Well, the story actually reveals a God that is extremely attractive that you would want to believe in. You would want to believe that a God like this exists. So God observes something. He's observed violence, and now he says, the end of all flesh has come before me. For the earth is filled with violence through them, and behold, I will destroy, I will destroy them with the earth. What's happening in this text? Do you see it? This language, the end of all flesh has come before me, the end of all flesh, this is the language of annihilation, of extinction. And, and what is the cause of this very, very portentous Extinction that's just right around the corner if God doesn't do something. Violence. Violence is overtaking the world. 
people are not governed by law. Everyone is a law to himself, and, law, and violence is overtaking the world. And God says, hey, if I don't do something, the human race will cease to exist, and I'll lose the whole thing, and there won't be a human race to deal with. So then, after the whole Noah story unfolds, we know the story, right? I'm not going to go into the details because we're looking at something here from the aerial view position. Okay, so the flood happens, the ark lands, Noah and his family exit the ark, and here's another part nobody really seems to notice. God tells Noah that an accommodation needs to be made, a provision. Something needs to happen because the world was just so caught up in violence that the whole thing was about to be extinct. So God institutes, this is the first mention, not only in the Bible, but some think in all of literature, to the death penalty, to capital punishment. And God says to Noah, okay, we're going to have to do something now. We're going to have to do something. Whoever sheds man's blood, that's violence, right? What was threatening the race? Violence. Whoever sheds man's blood, by man his blood shall be shed. For in the image of God, man was made. This is the death penalty. This is capital punishment. It doesn't matter whether you or I agree with the death penalty right this moment. But back then, this was a necessary accommodation to ensure what in the story? That the human race is throttled down in its violence so that the human race is not threatened with extinction yet again because there is no law. This is the implementation of civil law. God is saying you need to set up a system where people can't kill people and not have some kind of result that would prevent them from doing it again, again, again. So if you have suddenly a death penalty involved, people are like, I don't think I want to kill anybody anymore. I'll do other stuff, but I'm not going to commit murder. So, so that's, the, that's the flood story. Now watch this. The second accommodation that I want to call your attention to is the story of Abraham and Isaac, where God essentially says, uh, Abraham, kill your son. Put him on an altar, slit his throat, and burn him to ashes. Perform an act of human sacrifice. Now, now, why would God tell him that? Well, the scripture reveals why. In Joshua 24, your fathers, speaking to the children of Israel, your fathers, including Terah and the father of Abraham and the father of Nahor, dwelt on the other side of the river in old times. And what were they doing over there on the other side of the river? They served other gods. Now, these other gods were defined by the requirement of human sacrifice. In fact, they came from a city called Ur, which means fire, which some think means that that city was a hub of human sacrifice. So, so, so then what happens in the text? Then I, that is God, those other guys, they were on the other side of the river and they were doing human sacrifice. They were serving other gods. Then I took your father Abraham from the other side of the river and led him. So what's happening here? God is not merely leading Abraham from one geographical location to another geographical location. He's starting a new lineage. A new biological lineage? Yes. But is biology God's primary interest? Well, we know in the bigger story that biology isn't God's primary interest because God wants the whole world to be Israel, spiritually, ultimately, in the story. So it's not biology that God's interested in. It's biography that God is interested in. So he's not just leading Abraham from one geographical location to another. He's leading Abraham out of a way of thinking. He's leading him away from, well, his fathers and everybody in his family, they were worshiping other gods and performing human sacrifice. So God takes Abraham out of Ur, out of that worship system that included human sacrifice. So is it 
not interesting? That as God leads Abraham out of that system, at one point God says, now sacrifice your son. And then doesn't allow him to go through with it? And shifts the attention to the high theological idea that no, Abraham, you can't make that sacrifice. I won't accept it. I'm the one who's going to make the sacrifice to save you. I don't require sacrifice. I'm making the sacrifice to save you. And Abraham undergoes a massive paradigm shift. Now, we know this is the case because Abraham's early in the story. Later on, Moses says that human sacrifice is an abomination to God. No, listen, no post-Moses Israelite would even consider the possibility of human sacrifice. If you heard a voice that purported to be God right now today that said, I want you to take your son and sacrifice him, you'd say, that's the voice of the devil. That's not the voice of God. Why? Because God was leading him and he was navigating the evil in order to get the evil out of the human psyche, the human relational situation. So the third one in our accommodation principle examples is Mosaic Law. Mosaic Law from Exodus straight through Deuteronomy. What is Mosaic Law? Well, some people look at the Old Testament, the writings of Moses, and they say, that's barbaric, that's horrible. Some of the stuff that's said to be done in the laws of Moses, but I'd like to suggest to you something. If you actually read what's happening in the law of Moses in the context in which it's written with the grand narrative arc in mind, if you read it like that, you discover something, and it's this, that Mosaic law was a revolutionary step forward. How was it a revolutionary step forward? Well, something like this. Mosaic law throttled evil down while making incremental and sometime quantum leap advancements forward taking the people from where they were to where they needed to be. So it was a process. We might say it like this. Mosaic law moved the world, not just the children of Israel. You and I are living right now under the benefits of Mosaic law. The fact is, Mosaic law moved the world from the despotic rule of the strong over the weak to the impartial rule of law. Suddenly, there wasn't anyone who could violate the collective principles that all of us are accounted, accountable to. This is remarkable, and every democracy in the world, all of Western culture, is living under the light of what Moses wrote. This was huge. This was an advancement to live under the rule of law, equal before the law, all human beings. The only reason we do not live under, you and I, the only reason you and I do not live under the arbitrary rule, oh, typo, of dictators is because Moses spoke. I like Moses. Moses, another way we could say this is simply that Moses rocks. Moses is my penultimate hero. Jesus is my ultimate hero. But Moses, ah, what would the world be like without Moses? The world would be a very dark place if Moses had never put pen to paper. You and I live under the blessing of the fact that Moses said, no more arbitrary, despotic rule. We're all coming under the law, equal before the law. But notice this, Paul makes some provision or some advancement with regards to the law of Moses, with regards to the Old Testament as a whole. For even what was made glorious, he's talking about the Sinai event and all the writings of Moses and everything that Moses did. For even what was made glorious, it was pretty glorious for its time. What was made glorious had how much glory? No glory in this respect. 
because of the glory that does what? Excels. There's a glory that excels the law before which we all stand with impartial equality. There's something, there's something more glorious than the external imposition of law. And so Paul has all these statements about law that are just mind-blowing. He says the law is not made for, for a righteous person. But for who? For the lawless. Well, wait a minute. The law is not for those who have the law. That's what he's saying. If you don't have the law, the law is for you. A righteous person doesn't need the external imposition of law. I mean, is it really necessary in a good marriage where the two individuals are genuinely in love and living with, with love and faithfulness and integrity toward one another, is it really necessary for every morning for, for them to wake up and, and, and for him to say, listen, I'm going to go out of the house today, I'm going to go out of the house today, I'm going to go to work, and while I'm gone, make sure you don't commit adultery. Is that a mature marriage? Or is that a dysfunctional Marriage. It's operating at a very low level. Law, external law, is a provision. The new covenant moves the law from external code of ethics to internal motive. The law written in the heart. Christ is the end of the law, Paul says. Christ is the end of the law for, those, for righteousness to everyone who believes. The word end here is the word in the Greek telos, from which we get telescope. It's not saying that Jesus abolishes or does away with the law. It's saying the law reaches to Jesus. It, 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 it looks to Jesus as its end goal. This is fascinating. Watch this. The law was our schoolmaster to bring us where? To Christ. The, the law is only a temporary provision to get you and me to the place where external law is not what we're governed by, but rather by internal law. So in other words, say it this way. God's ultimate will for human beings is self-governance. Not just to be constantly threatened with police officers roaming, roaming the streets and a civil justice system to keep us all from murdering one another. Wouldn't it be great to live in a world in which everybody lives with relational integrity toward one another? That's what Paul is getting at in these law statements. And then there is this accommodation experience where the children of Israel said, give us a king. This is where the accommodation principle really shows up, and it's incredible at this point. Follow this. We're only 49 minutes so far, so chill. Calm down. We're not going to go very much longer, but I'm just telling you it hasn't been very long. Take a deep breath if you need to. Oxygenate your frontal lobe. Sit up a little straighter. Do whatever you need to do. Two more points. Okay. The children of Israel said, give us a king. God said, no, actually, that's not a good idea. I want to govern you by, a prophet, by prophets. Now, what's the difference between a prophet and a king? A prophet is an agent of education. A king is an agent of rule. That's the difference. God is saying, I want to govern you directly with information, with data. I want to give you, I want to educate you. I want to impart wisdom to you so you can become self-governing. That, that's what I want from you. I want you to be governed directly by me through a prophet. You don't want a king. I'm telling you, you don't want, no, we want a king. We want a king. So here's what God said to his prophet. And the Lord said to Samuel, heed the voice of the people and all that they say to you, for they have not rejected you, they have rejected me, that I should not reign over them, context, through prophets. They want a king, they've not rejected. So what is God doing here? Does God want Israel to have a king? No. But he's accommodating their insistence. And then God says, through his prophet, and he said to the Children of Israel who said, we want a king. Give us a king. He said, this will be the behavior of the king who will reign over you. He will take your sons off to war. He will take your daughters as concubines. And he will tax your lands to make himself wealthy. You still want a king? Yes, we want a king. They were stupid. That's, I mean, what else can you say? And yet all of history 
reveals to us that human beings, by and large, have been more comfortable in slavery than in liberation. Human beings, in general, would rather pace the open cage. The door's open and God has liberated all of us, but we don't want to step out there and be free because freedom equates to responsibility. We'd rather just be told what to do. And so God says, all right, you can have a king and you know the history that followed in that situation. And then the second king after Saul was David. And David, and this is the kicker. If you haven't comprehended anything I've said so far, you need to get this point. That's a, that's a trick, by the way, to get you to listen right now rather than... Okay, so, you, he tells David, you can't build my temple. Now, in the passage, David is so excited. He's saying, okay, okay, I, I'm at that point in my life. I'm, I'm getting old. My career as a military general and a man of war, it's coming to... I just want to do one thing, Lord. I want to build a temple for the worship of God. He's so excited about it. Oh, and the word of the Lord came to me, David says. And the Lord said to David, what? You, David, have shed much blood and have made great wars, David. You shall not build a house for my name, for my character, because you have shed much blood on the earth in my sight, David. Now, anybody who knows the story right there is saying, what? Wasn't God the one who said, I'll bless you, I'll give you victories, I'll take you out against your enemies and you will win because I'm with you? Well, yeah, that's part of the story too. But here, as David's military career is coming to a conclusion, this is fascinating. God, who had been giving him victory, disassociates himself from violence. God says, I was in that with you because that's you, David. That's the world you live in. That's how life is done on planet Earth. And so if I have to choose between blessing you, my people, so that Messiah can eventually come and redeem, I'll stick with you rather than with the pagan nations who would extinguish you. I'll keep your nation alive, God is basically saying, by giving you some military victories, but I'm not into it. And when it comes down to it, David, you need to know something. Ultimately, a man of war with blood on his hands can't build a temple for my name because I'm not into the violence. I stand against it, but I'm accommodating it along the way because you've given me no other choice, because I love you, and I want to stay connected with you, I just wish that you wouldn't kill anybody. This is fascinating so that as the prophecy continues to unfold, I won't get into that, God says to David, okay, you can't build my house, but you have a son. His name will be called Solomon, which means shalom. Shalom is the biblical word that becomes the name of the city of God and the name of God's ultimate city. And shalom is the biblical word that just means, it means wellness. It means all life forms are intersecting without harm. It means everybody coexists without violation. So, so David, you're going to have a son, and he's going to be a man of wisdom and peace, not a man of war. And a man without blood on his hands will build my temple. Now watch this. The prophet Isaiah shows up and says, Now it shall come to pass building on what has been revealed through David and God communicating with David. It will come to pass in the latter days, this is messianic, that the mountain of the Lord's house shall be established on the top of the mountains. God's governmental system will come to the top eventually. God will eventually rule the world by benevolence and love, not by violence and war. That's what's being said here. The, the house of the Lord. Now watch this. And it shall be exalted above the hills, and all the nations will flow to it, to God's mountain, to God's governmental system, and many people shall come. And here's what they're going to say. Don't miss this. Many people will come to the Lord in his house, and, and they will say, come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob. Why? What are they interested in? What's the attraction? Watch this. He will teach us his, what? 
his ways, and we will walk in his paths. What are his ways? What are his paths? For out of Zion shall go forth the law. What law? Out of Zion shall go forth the law, and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem, the city of peace, and what will that look like when God's law reigns supreme? And they shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war anymore. That's God saying, when the world is the way I want the world to be, when the world is the way I want the world to be, implements of violence, swords and spears, will be turned into farming implements. And essentially what he's saying is human beings will be living together in benevolent, nonviolent, agrarian social structures. We'll just all be planting stuff. Check out my pineapples. Can I have a few of your mangoes, please? Those avocados are amazing. And she's growing flowers over there. And everybody's existing together in this beautiful, harmonious situation. And that's ultimately where the story in its grand narrative arc lands. Where does it land? It lands where God ultimately has wanted it to be all along. It lands at a beautiful place where there is no violence, there is no war, there is no relational violation. Everybody living in shalom, one with another. In closing, a thought experiment. I want you to imagine the unimaginable. This is horrible, and if it brings any pain to anybody here because of a life's experience, I apologize for that, but please follow it through. A police officer knocks on your door. He has a grim look on his face. It's horrible news he's bearing. You stand there looking at him. What is it? He says, I have to tell you the bad news that your son was just brutally murdered. Somebody murdered your son. Now, emotionally, what do you feel at that moment? Do you feel angry for what someone has done to your son? Yes or no? Is there legitimate anger? Should you be angry in a righteous kind of way? Should you feel anger for the murder that was committed? If they apprehend the murderer, will you press charges? Do you want him in jail? Do you want the civil justice system to actually apprehend the murderer and to press charges? Yes or no? Of course you do. And then the police officer, okay, you got those feelings? Freeze frame them. Feelings of justice, feelings of anger. Some no-name murderer has killed my son. And then the police officer says, the news is worse than that because it's your daughter who did it. Did your emotions just change? Of course they did. Now you're in a different place, but it's the same place. Are you still angry? Yes. But now your anger is flooded with love. And you're like, oh, it's not a no-name somebody three doors down with this picture in the post office, the most wanted. Th this is your daughter that killed your son. What I'm suggesting to you is that God's predicament is like the second situation. God's predicament is not one in which somebody he loves has been hurt by somebody he doesn't know. We've all been hurt by one another. We are all violated, and we are all violators, every last one of us. And the fact is that God's emotional state is very complex because it is a mixture of hatred for evil because of the pain it causes those he loves. It is a mixture of hatred of evil, simultaneously love for sinners. He has no choice. If he's going to stay connected with the likes of you and me, he's going to have to 
improvise. He's going to have to accommodate. He's going to have to educate. He's going to have to give us the prophets. He's going to have to fill us with wisdom and light and understanding so that we can choose incrementally, bit by bit, of our own free will to become dignified creatures of other-centered love and to voluntarily choose to be those kinds of people. Father in heaven, you are truly incredible. There is none like you in the universe. God, with what profound wisdom have you related to the horrific mess that we have created in our world? May we never blame you again. In Jesus' name, amen.